AIA Insights with David O'Sullivan and Dan O'Brien. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of our new podcast, IIEA Insights. Each episode of this podcast will feature an interview with myself or IIEA Chief Economist, Dan O'Brien. We'll be talking to leading figures on the thinking behind developments in Brussels and beyond. This week, I spoke to former Belgian Prime Minister and President of the European Council, Herman van Rompuy, about the war in Ukraine, its consequences, the knock-on effect for the economy, geopolitical developments, relations between Europe and Russia, and of course, the role of China in a geopolitical environment. To kick things off, I asked President van Rompuy to tell us how he sees the state of play in Europe today. The, the war in Ukraine is qualitatively different from the various crises that have succeeded since 2008. And just to recall, the succession of crisis concerns respectively the banks, the Eurozone, an economic recession, terrorism, climate disasters, refugees, COVID, inflation, all this since 2008. In between, we had a terrible Trump years, and in between, we had another populist project called Brexit. Most of these crises are external to the Union. Banks, refugees, COVID, terrorism, inflation, that's external. Some have an internal cause, the Eurozone crisis, as, as you mentioned, and of course, also climate change. And it is really difficult to find a common thread through this permanent crisis, this permar crisis. Sometimes this threat is recklessness of the private sector, the banks, or of the authorities, real estate bubbles, climate change, dependence on uh, Russian gas and oil. Uh, so sometimes it is recklessness. Then again, the institutions were not prepared for a major crisis. We were not prepared uh, for the Eurozone crisis, uh, so uh, our institutions were not, uh, not prepared. Also the, the Schengen area uh, with regard to the, the refugee crisis and, and for COVID also we, we famous problem of the lack of masks and so on. So longer term politics were neglected in those last three areas. Of course, we draw lessons from each case but it takes, time for, it takes time for unanimous solutions to emerge in the Union. And as you know, we need consensus. We need consensus in the European Council. It's uh, a consensus that is needed under the treaties. So what, what lessons should we draw from a war that is far from over? What are the, the short-term or the question and long-term consequences? Another question, has the geopolitical landscape changed fundamentally or only existing trends been reinforced? I try to give an answer uh, of elements of answer to those questions. Let's start with the positive. The, the EU and the West, I mean NATO, the G7, are pretty much united again after the Trump years. There is a common enemy. And having a common enemy helps always to, to agree. Within the EU, there is a, some kind of power shift 
to the detriment of Germany and France on the one hand, and to the benefit of Italy, Poland, the Baltic states, and some Central European countries on the other. Those are supported by the United States. So the Franco-German tandem had to free itself from a naive attitude towards Russia. And the case of Germany is very particular. Germany had to make a U-turn in numerous areas. Dependence on cheap Russian gas, Nord Stream 2, remember, pipeline canceled, the defense budget, arms supplies, creating a huge debate inside Germany, and also the issue of Ukraine as a candidate member. So they have to, to make fundamental changes in their, in their, in their policies. Germany also had to give up a number of taboos during the pandemic. I recall budget balance, state aid to companies, a form of, of, of euro bonds. Uh, so within the EU, there is now more multipolarity and less bipolarity. A weak point for the EU remains the arms deliveries to Ukraine, the war will not be won with sanctions alone. So now about our relations with, uh, with Russia. Relations with Russia were already bad since 2014. Let us not forget that everything started with Russia pressuring Ukraine not to sign the association agreement with the European Union. That created the revolution of Maidan. Russia is even more opposed to this than to the so-called NATO membership that was never pursued after 2008. After the annexation of Crimea, 2014 again, and the destabilization of the Donbass, which cost 30,000 lives from 2014 to February 24th, so already 30,000 people died before the invasion. So uh, after the annexation of Crimea and the destabilization of Donbass, Russia was thrown out of the G8 and economic sanctions were imposed, although not comparable to the current ones. With the war, this uh, trend accelerated and the break is total and long lasting. The sanctions will remain as long as the territorial integrity of Ukraine is not restored. Dialogue is gone because trust is gone. What is Putin's word worth anymore? International treaties are just a scrap of paper to him. Ethics has become a strange world. By the way, and just as a footnote, and I agree it is of a totally different order, but the UK does not abide by international agreements with all the consequences this has on the trust in them. Trust comes, and there's a very general statement, trust comes on horseback and returns on foot. So uh, relations with China. Relations with China have deteriorated since 2016. But there was an attempt at recovery with the investment agreement negotiated by under the German presidency in December 2020, 
but this attempt failed. Here too, after the, 20, uh, the 24th of February, there is an acceleration of the already existing trend. There is no longer any naivety here either. The primacy of economics and money has given way to the primacy of politics. That's the hard lesson many in Europe learned, especially in Germany. I'm convinced that China does not want this war. They want stability. And certainly not a protected one, but neither can they become an ally against Russia, for example, by participating in sanctions. For the EU, as you know, China is a partner. The most obvious example is climate change. China is a partner, China is a competitor, who often, by the way, acts unfairly, and is a systemic rival. They don't like that word at all. But now, after the 24th of February, things change. China became a friend of an enemy. The West does not seek confrontation with, China, with Beijing, but a peaceful coexistence. One of the reasons, of course, is that China is our biggest trading partner, at least in goods. Neither can completely isolate the other, but the union is now striving for strategic autonomy from China in vital areas, batteries, rare earths, telecommunications, and so on. China itself is seeking the same reduction in its strategic dependence. In addition, there are territorial disputes and conflicts in the Far East, and China looks at the president, president of Ukraine with suspicion. I recall China promised Russia a friendship without limits, I'm quoting, without limits in January, not, uh, not two years ago, in January, and the G7 just promised Ukraine to stand with it for, for as long as it takes. So the positions are rather clear. This pursuit of strategic autonomy is present in all the three global actors, China, the US, and the EU. In the EU, it has even become a central objective, not only, by the way, with respect to China, but also with respect to the other global actors. This idea of strategic autonomy started in the Trump period, by the way. It concerns strategic autonomy much more than energy and defense. It also concerns the digital, migration, food, medicines, medical equipment, etc. The peak of globalization is over. Relations, another chapter, with the EU and the US have, of course, improved greatly since President Biden took office. However, Europeans remain cautious after the zigzag foreign policy of the United States for, the, for 20 years. Unilateralism under President Bush Jr., multilateralism under Obama, unilateralism under Trump, and multilateralism under Biden. So, and what will happen in the autumn of this year, and what will happen the next presidential elections, question mark. In any case, the Republican Party has broken with 
Trump's pro-Putin policy. Both major political parties are anti-China and anti-Russia. In the EU, we have to be honest on this, the previous nuances have almost disappeared since the 24th of February. The war has greatly accelerated existing inflationary trends. Inflation was on the rise before the 24th of February. The cost of living has now moved to the top of the political agenda. Inflation has been driven both by what the economists call demand pull and cost push. Demand pull through the catch-up demand after COVID and through money creation for almost a decade. And by cost push, push such as the disruption of supply lines, shortages in all labor markets and bottlenecks in oil and gas. The problem now is that monetary policy can only control demand. A second problem, uh, economic problem for, for the Western countries and also for European countries is that fiscal policy remains expansionary while monetary policy is restrictive, not the ideal policy mix. Inflation works electorally against the incumbent governments and in favor of the populists, at least where they are in opposition. Excessive economic divergence within the Eurozone could lead to tensions on the financial markets. And the ECB is already taking measures against this. Another consequence of the war is that it threatens to disrupt the Commission's and the European Union's climate policy. Higher energy prices than the current level as a result of climate policy are just unthinkable. Energy shortages are a catastrophe for national governments, for the Union, and for the support to Ukraine. Therefore, an immediate recourse to other supply routes for oil and gas, including shale gas. The use of coal, the use of nuclear energy is no longer taboo. In the longer term, of course, the war can be an additional incentive for renewable energy and clean hydrogen. I'm convinced that we will become less dependent on Russia more quickly. Also because Russia will turn off the gas tap completely or partially. They are, in some way, they are helping. For Russia, only the short term counts now. The destabilization of the European Union. That's the, and of course, uh, in the major, uh, uh, big objective, besides the major objective, is uh, annexing parts of Ukraine or dominating Ukraine as a whole. China will take over much Russian gas without becoming too dependent on Russia, that's for sure. But the post-Putin Russia is far too unstable for that. They will take no risk. No risk. They will not take the risk to become over-dependent from Russian gas and oil, at least in the longer term. Much will depend on the cause of the war. Anything is possible. Either an, a new offensive by Russia westwards or a Russian unilateral ceasefire after the annexation of the Donbass region, which would make Ukraine stand in the way of so-called peace and force Ukraine to wage 
an offensive war. But who can predict anything after the 24th of February? So very wise British words is wait and see. In French, they have another word, qui vivra vera, the living will tell. I think you're absolutely right that uh, we are in a situation of, of considerable uncertainty, which is, which is very challenging. Um, can I, I, I want us to look forward, but uh, since I had the privilege uh, of assisting at a number of the dinners which you and uh, President Barroso and Kathy Ashton had with President Putin in the days when we had summits with the Russians, uh, and I remember that we had many different conversations. I remember most memorably President Putin turning up at Val Duchesse at 11 o'clock at night for a dinner, which had been scheduled for eight. Um, but in any of those conversations, did, did you ever get a hint of, of, of what we are now facing? I mean, you know, it is quite fashionable for people to be very critical, particularly of Chancellor Merkel and say, we were too complacent. Uh, we didn't see the warning signs coming. How, how do you feel about what you saw then and, and how things have since evolved? You know, uh, the, the last summit we had uh, was, I think, in Brussels. It yes. was by the end of 2013, or the beginning of 2014, we were right. in the Maidan crisis. And then we, yes. Barroso, my, I, myself, and Putin had a, a, a separate conversation, the three of us. Um, but um, at that time, of course, uh, it was before the annexation of Crimea. It was before the destabilization of uh, of the East. Uh, but since then, as you said, the, there were no summits anymore. But before that, even in the summits we had six months uh, ahead of this last summit, uh, he was not threatening us uh, about uh, the association agreement with Ukraine. Uh, we, we afterwards, in September 2013, it was the president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, at that time, who informed us, we were already informed, that he informed us officially that he was under heavy pressure from Russia. But in the summit we had, which we put in a few weeks or a few months earlier, he never mentioned Ukraine. He spoke about this big idea of a community of um, Vladivostok uh, to Lisbon and 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 uh, the, the, this customs union that he was setting up with Belarus and with Kazakhstan, of course, he, he, he wanted also to uh, Ukraine to join. But th there was not only a threat on, 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 on an invasion or a war, there was, he was not even threatening us just on the association agreement. Huh? And then we discovered later on that uh, they prevented Yanukovych to sign. Mm. And that created the revolution of Maidan. And all the problems were starting from that moment on, from that moment on. No, that's uh, absolutely, that's, that was always my impression as well. It, it, it was very surprising. Um, I saw where Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence in the US today said that, um, you know, they, they had three scenarios for the future. One was a, a long drawn out conflict. Uh, the other was um, uh, a, a shorter a shorter conflict where, where there was some kind of compromise or or um, uh, Russia really making a big push. But she doubted that the Russians really had the military capacity at this stage to, to make a very big push. 
if we face a long drawn out conflict, do you think the unity within the European Union will hold or will we see will we see cracks in, in the interpretation given the, the, the consequences which this will have differentially across our, our member states? Put it in this way, you can only have a peace agreement when Ukraine make major concessions, territorial concessions, and they are not ready to do so. Uh, or there is a, a unilateral uh, ceasefire from Russia uh, saying our aim was uh, to, to liberate the Russian-speaking minority in, uh, in Ukraine. Now we have this region of Donbass, uh, it is even annexed to, to Russia, and for us the, over, the war is over. The war is over. Of course, the war is not done, it's not over for Ukraine at that moment. Uh, and, and we are facing then a, a a, a, a really a conflict of a very long duration or dirty hypothesis the war is going on huh? it's going simply going on huh? um, and and you you see that Russia is not capable of capable of of occupying Ukraine as a whole and and Ukraine at this stage we'll see what what happened in the future is uh, is not capable of pushing them back in all the places where there are already so we we are there we have a conflict for a longer, longer period than, than most people expected. But this is a problem in the first place for Ukraine, for its people, for its army. They are suffering. We are not suffering. They are suffering. They are dying. We are not dying. Of course, the longer it's, uh, it's, it's lasting, uh, yeah, yes, our, our unity will be under, uh, under pressure. But uh, I think that U Ukraine, and especially Russia, are facing bigger problems than we have. The world economy, of course, will also suffer. Inflation was already there before the invasion, but with the, 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 as long as the war is going on, you will have this inflation pressure. Uh, and, uh, this, and, and all the, 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 the policy to, uh, to suppress this inflation, so they, this, then a recession become, in any case, almost inevitable. And, and this creates, of course, tensions inside each of our societies, each in our member states and for the European Union as a whole, by the way, also in the United States, eh? because inflation and recession is not the ideal uh, argument to go to the presidential elections uh, in 2024. Eh? So yes, a, a, a long, uh, long conflict, a, a war that's lasting longer than than expected, uh, has uh, a lot of consequences. Uh, but I forgot to mention here is that if we don't find a solution uh, for uh, exporting again wheat and and food in general, not only a few ten thousands will die in in Ukraine, millions will die on the African continent and in other countries. So it's a really, really catastrophic, uh, catastrophic situation that we are, that we are, we are facing. No, I, I'm glad you, you, you reminded us of that last point because it is absolutely crucial and the, 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 the knock-on consequences of the food shortages for the developing world are, are massive, as, as you say. Can I, um, move to the economic consequences because uh, since you lived through the euro crisis and and were among those who helped 
solve it or at least prevent it from becoming much worse than it might otherwise have done. Um, there is speculation of a new public debt crisis in Europe with spreads uh, in increasing between, uh, uh, say, Italy and German bonds. Uh, and the, the ECB is thinking about perhaps ways of, of dealing with this. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you think we are now sufficiently well equipped that we, we, we can avoid a, a new crisis as, as a result of the pressures which uh, the, the, the situation you've just described is, is, is applying to the system? Of course, uh, people are, are worried when they see that the spreads are rising, especially between Italian bonds and, and, the, and the German ones. I think now the spread is uh, 2%, two, 2 percent, uh, 200 basic points. Um, but the ECB reacted, um, reacted almost uh, immediately. And that they had their, their board meeting. Um, and in the board meeting was said that they, they would raise interest rates, but a few days later they had to correct this already and say that they will do anything that is needed uh, to maintain the stability of the, of the Eurozone. Uh, so I am confident that the ECB will do what, uh, what is necessary uh, and as long as it's necessary. Uh, but uh, for sure, there is uh, there are again tensions inside inside the eurozone. We draw some lessons from the previous experience, 2010, 2012. Uh, also, in in many areas, uh, I don't think that we will impose uh, some countries again austerity and all those things. Um, that's that's not not even on the agenda. So, but uh, on the in the purely financial in the fi on the financial side, the ECB will jump in much earlier than they jumped in in two thousand uh, in two thousand twelve. Don't forget that the Americans told us already in two thousand eleven that you have a central bank. W what are they doing? Are they not intervening yet, as our central bank is doing? And the British told, gave us the same, or telling us the same story. So I think that that this this was the the lesson. We have a powerful instrument, the ECB, and it is ready to act. In two thousand twelve, they waited. Let us be honest, too long. Mm. And on the 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 energy agenda, you 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 very clearly set out in your remarks that. Uh, the, the, initial, the immediate consequence of this crisis is actually a setback for our ambition in fighting climate change, that we're bringing back online coal-fired uh, um, uh, plants, uh, uh, deferring perhaps the decommissioning of nuclear plants and, and, and seeking new sources of oil and gas. But you also say that you are convinced that in the medium term, this will actually accelerate the transition. Uh, which I, I think I, I think I agree with you, but could you say a few words more about that? Oh, uh, I'm not an energy specialist. What I know is that uh, we are uh, we have already very ambitious climate goals huh? uh, for 2030. Uh, the greenhouse gas emissions has to be has to decrease with 55 percent. Uh, in 2050, we are aiming at the net zero uh, emissions. Uh, so we, we were already 
embarked on a very, uh, very ambitious um, policy goal. Um, I think you have to make, the, as I said, and you are reiterating it, uh, the distinction between short term, where we have to, to avoid a catastrophe this winter, uh, and, and the longer term. And in the longer term, that's what's happening now, can give an argument also uh, to, uh, to government because the implementation belongs to a large extent to, to national or regional authorities. They give them an argument uh, to, um, to, to take the necessary measures. And you know, in, in, in politics, uh, there is this famous word of, uh, of Winston Churchill, never let a good crisis go to waste. Eh? Uh, and that's that's also the case today. So we are facing a, a major crisis, also in the energy field. So we have a plan. We don't we don't need to invent a plan. We have a plan. The Fit for Fifty Five. Uh, we know what we have to do. The only thing that we need is the political will. Uh, and uh, let's say when we are the back against the wall, and we are better back against the wall this political will come much more easier than when there is no pressure and no need. So my answer is a, a very political answer uh, because we know what to do. That, that's not a problem. And then and the, the, the Council of Ministers and the Parliament uh, are very close, or if not, uh, they are agreeing uh, on a lot of instruments. Um, the, trajectory, the trajectory is known also for the, for the, for the member states. So the only thing is, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Of course, I'm also reminded uh, of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker's uh, reference to the fact that uh, we know exactly what to do. We just haven't figured out how to get ourselves re-elected after doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Russia is repeating the same crimes it committed in Syria since 2015 in Ukraine, including bombing hospitals, schools, residential areas, all in a bid to target civilians. Putin was never sanctioned for Syria for his crimes with Assad. If the EU had pressed for accountability, accountability uh, to end the slaughter in Syria, would the Ukrainians be facing the current terror horror? The situation is totally, totally different. Also from the European and the Western side, the situation is, is different in this sense that we, we came out of, uh, of the Libyan crisis um where and we were not happy uh, with the final result um so we prevented Gaddafi to commit uh, major crimes in, in Benghazi but then we embarked on, on regime change and and, and the, the Libyan situation was going out of control and there was no appetite for the Western countries uh, to really to engage more, after the Libyan adventure to, to engage more in, in Syria. And by the way, in Syria, the situation was very complicated because the opposition was extremely divided, uh, also with people of Al-Qaeda and, and, and other groups. And so it, it was not sure that if we are helping one part of the Syrian opposition, we de facto were not helping terrorists and, and, and radical Islam. So a very complicated situation. Um, this, this situation is much more clear. We know what happened. There's an invasion of Russia, and we know that we have to support Ukraine. 
Uh, and you, you, of course, there we know what what Putin did in Syria, and is repeating this in, uh, in 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 Ukraine. Now we are, it is closer to us, so we are more affected. We are becoming much more emotional, much more engaged when we see what's happening in Ukraine because it is closer to us, to our borders. Uh, the European Union is not only Western Europe. Uh, ask it. Uh, our Polish friends and our friends of, of, the, of the Baltic states, or Romania, Bulgaria, they, so they, they feel threatened. They feel threatened. There's a big, big uh, difference with, uh, with Syria. With Syria, it's, it, of course, it's, uh, what happened there is extremely cruel. But we feel this, this war as a threat for Europe as a whole, and especially for our Central and Eastern European countries so the and they think that Putin will never stop huh? that after Ukraine others can, are candidate countries ready to be invaded huh? so your there are parallels but there are a lot of differences too is there any way short of a complete defeat for Russia to eradicate the ambition for a broad Russian zone, zone of influence yeah this this uh, They are in another logic than we are. Uh, and that uh, the Europeans and especially also the Germans discovered. We think that everybody is thinking at his or its economic interests. So waging war, war was out of the question because in a cost benefit, you lose always with the war. Um, and that's why also what the, and Germany reasoned economically when they launched this idea of uh, the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, cheap energy, because they, we, get, we become dependent from, from, from Russia, but Russia will also become dependent from us. This, this failed completely. They are in the logic of the primacy of politics, of the primacy of nostalgic nationalism. We were too long in the logic of what is the, our and their, their economic interests. So when you, when you try to understand that kind of logic, there is no end. There is no end. Um, so the, the Ukraine is not the last stage in the, in, in this in the slogan make Russia great again uh, and uh, actually you have to to be fully aware that the aim was to occupy to colonize Ukraine in a blitzkrieg in three years three days days time and they failed now now it's it's a uh, it, it's, it's a war that is restricted at, at least to, uh, so, so far to, uh, to the Donbass and showing the irrationality of what is happening. David, look at the map of, of, of Russia from Poland to Alaska, from Poland to Alaska. And they are fighting and people are dying for, I'm now exaggerating, a few square kilometers in the east of Ukraine. And you make Russia great again when you occupy 
this province of the, 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 this, the, those small regions. And you have to compare this with, 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 with Russia, almost from, from, from Vladivostok uh, to, uh, to, to Lviv or to the, the, the Polish border. We are in a totally different logic, in a totally different logic. And human lives don't count and the economy is not the most important thing. The most important thing is, as I said, make Russia great again. Of course they will fail. Of course they will fail. Uh, but the simple fact that you try to restore the past, of partially the, the past, is in itself an, an, unbelievable, an unbelievable story in the beginning of the 21st century. There's a famous book of Stefan Zweig, yes. developed from yesterday, the, the world of yesterday. We are living in the world of yesterday. We are living in the world of yesterday. Yes, sadly, sadly, I'm afraid you're right. I think it is the utter futility of this war that makes it, it so so exasperating. Um, President, it, it's it's been a wonderful conversation, and and so much. Uh, I, I we could continue for for a very long time. I, I I cannot let you go, however, since this is an Irish audience, uh, without asking your view on on Brexit. Is it possible to reach a, an agreement with the UK government? Uh, or, or is, it, is it a hopeless cause that will lead to a trade war? I suppose I would like to just complement that by contrasting, I mean, the, the strong sense of unity of purpose, which I think has been found again with the UK in, in this Ukrainian uh, conflict, uh, and how many people have commented to me that in the conversations with British diplomats and, and politicians, we, we are again on the same side and, and, and share so many common values and views, and yet we are still we are still unable to to find a common way forward uh, uh, on Brexit and, and in particular on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, what what is your what is your sense of of, of how this will play out? Now, the, the, the last question is one question too much. Eh? <laughs> 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 but uh, but all, also this is this is almost an unbelievable story. Huh? Uh, I'm not speaking about Brexit as such, as just one word. Brexit is not an economic project. Huh? If it was an economic project, that it, not, never have, it would never have taken place. Huh? It's a political project. You're a political project, and there is an economic cost, but they are ready to pay, pay that, that economic cost. There's one observation. So, in 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 some way, it's uh, it's a nationalist, an English nationalist uh, project, in itself strange, right? because in Europe we are not we are not saints, but we put that behind us. We, we put and that the long education in the European Union learns that. Of course, there, there is some kind of nationalism inside the European Union, but not comparable uh, to uh, comparable to what we see. Uh, at the other side of, 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 of the channel. So they are, they are in, a, in, a, in a logic that say that is not our logic anymore. Uh, the second observation is that you negotiate with Britain. It, I think it took almost four years. We, we finally concluded. Uh, we made an agreement with a, a very well-known Brexiteer. So not with the soft one and with, with a hard one. We agreed on the most difficult issue of, uh, of, of the, the, the package we had to negotiate, 
on Northern Ireland. We finally, we agreed because without Northern Ireland, we could have agreed after six months. So it, it was the Irish question that, that made this, this negotiation so difficult. Then we agreed. And after a few months, they said, oh no, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We have to renegotiate, but not asking for a renegotiation. No, unilaterally, in our view, illegally, we are changing the protocol. We are changing what was agreed. When you speak about trust, eh, it goes away on a horseback and comes back on foot. Uh, you, you can you can have a better example of how to create uh, distrust. Eh? Um, so there is no trust uh, at this stage. Uh, happily, the European Union in some way stayed calm. Uh, they are reopening infringement procedures and. and and so on. Uh, so they are waiting until the procedure in, in London uh, is completely finished uh, with the House of Commons and with the House of Lords. Uh, and we hope that in the meantime, we will find a, a solution, a solution. In the meantime, of course, Boris Johnson is under pressure from his heart lines. It is a very weak position. I don't know if it is the ideal climate uh, to, make, uh, to make concessions because concessions have to be made uh, uh, from the, the British side. So uh, I, I hope uh, and all we all hope that we finally find a solution that is not implying that there will be some kind of restoration of a border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Because it was all about this. It was all about this during four years of negotiation. Uh, so we uh, I'm more on the side of those who are hopeful, hopeful against uh, against uh, many other signals. So I hope that we will find a, a solution. Uh, but I think that the European Union uh, was united during those four years negotiating with, uh, with the UK, where, they are, where we were united from the very first day after the referendum. So we will, we will remain united. Even the German government is tougher than the the, the previous government on this issue. So there is no doubt about our position and we will do what is needed. Simply, we don't want it to do it. Mm -hmm. we, we hope, as Commissioner Sefcovic said, that we'll have constructive negotiations. Uh, so we stay calm uh, in facing a completely unacceptable, illegal and unilateral decision. Uh, but we have to because we we, we have to go try the agreements. We cannot allow that the hard border will uh, reappear on the island of Ireland. That's the issue. And it was the issue for, for during four years between 2016 and 2020. It remains, it remains our, our uh, main objective. We are on the side of, of, of the protocol and we are on the side of the Republic of Ireland. Thank you. Thank you very much. President Bonnambuy Herman, uh, it's it's been a delight. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you sometime in the future again, perhaps. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. Thank you for inviting me. A big thank you for tuning in to the first episode in our new IIEA podcast series, IIEA Insights, with former Prime Minister of Belgium and President of the European Council, Herman van Rompuy. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more expert insights from leading figures in EU affairs and international relations in the weeks and months to come, you can follow or subscribe to IIE Insights on our Spotify channel. Thanks again for listening.